Morning. All right, that's better. Warm you up a little bit. Uh, back home, they had to plow and shovel and everything uh, just to get ready for the church service this morning. And so uh, I stepped outside and I was surprised, uh, but at least no snow, right, so far. Although I guess last year you all had a good bout with that. I do several things in uh, just to be a help. There are handouts available if you would like one. They're fill-in-the-blank handouts. If you did not get one and you would like one, just raise your hand. It's only a $5 gratuity. <laughs> so if you did not get one, I see some back over here. You're not the only one. Several people got in here before they were available. Uh, so we've got a couple of young men that are going to pass those out. It's fill-in-the-blank to help you follow along. My favorite part about the handouts is that the, the major references that I use are right there. So when I'm listening to a preacher, I often miss the reference. Man, what? And I spend so much time thinking about where in the Bible is he right now. Uh, I've put them there for you just to help you out as much as possible. I've got uh, the, I asked the boys in the back to run the slides for me, or the men in the back, rather, uh, to run the slides for me this morning because I'm not used to having to push the button anymore. I've delegated that back home. But I do slides, I do handouts. Back home, I've got uh, a pretty sizable deaf ministry. And when I first started out preaching, I wasn't so sure I liked the screen or liked having the scripture up there. I, was, I thought, you know, bless God, people ought to be in their Bible. But then one of the deaf folks said, you know, Pastor, it's really helpful for us to have it up there. And that way they can look up and see the words on the screen and they can see the interpreter. And so uh, I just got used to using it. And so a good thing is, is no matter how you follow along this morning, whether it's in your Bible or with the screen or with your notes, it all says the same thing. And so you won't uh, suffer in any way for that. This message was actually a message that was on my heart before last Sunday. So some of you might have been here last week and thought, boy, that, that sounds kind of familiar. Did Pastor Joe and Pastor Will get together about this? And no, we did not. But we are going to be talking about the person of Jesus Christ in a moment. I really appreciate the opportunity to preach. Uh, I didn't expect to be as appreciated as I am today, and so I'm glad that uh, Pastor Joe and Pastor Hovey and uh, Brother Slichter appreciated it as well, but I really appreciate the opportunity to preach. Uh, preaching is my favorite thing. I love to do it. Uh, I do enjoy, when I reached out to Pastor Hovey and I told him, listen, I'm going to be down on these dates, but no expectations from me. We love to just come and sit in church. I love to hear Pastor Hovey preach. I love to hear Pastor Joe preach, uh, but I just wanted to let him know I was available, and uh, he took advantage of that, and the Lord knew, as Brother Slichter said. But I, I love coming down here and just spending time with you all. It's a great thing to have a, a church home away from home. It really is. You all have a great church here, and uh, it amazes me how many a good Bible teaching men you have in this church. I don't know if you realize this. That's not normal. That's rare. All right? That's rare. Many, many pastors, I'm not one of them. I have a, a few good men also in my church, but many pastors can't take a vacation because they don't have anyone qualified to fill in for them while they're gone. And so the fact that you have Pastor Hovey and you have Pastor Joe, and I've sat under Aaron Baker's Sunday school teachings, and I've heard many men here, uh, great teachers of the word, uh, just don't forget and don't, don't take that for granted. That, that's not normal. I've got many church people coming out of different denominations to my church saying, 
we just got tired of never hearing the Bible. And they come to my church, not because I'm some good preacher, but because I just preach verse by verse out of the Bible. And that's not happening very often anymore. So I praise the Lord that that's normal here. All right, so don't take that for granted. Well, you should be there by now, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 14 this morning together, uh, and then we'll consider the overall themes and context of the passage before we focus down in a a few key verses uh, there. It says in Philippians 3 verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he have whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless." But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, this is extra credit bonus content at the beginning of the message here. I wanted to get us into the overall context of the passage before we just focus down on a few of the verses. Uh, You know, I don't always have a long introduction, but as they say, when in Rome... uh, See, Pastor Joe and Pastor Hovey weren't here to even get that, but maybe they're tuning in. But anyway, the chapter starts with the word finally. Finally. That's a transitional phrase that Paul uses. He uses it occasionally when he writes. Now, if I were to say finally this morning, some of you would start packing up. You would think I was getting done. You notice that Paul says finally, and he's got, you know, a couple of chapters to go. And that's because The word finally doesn't mean what we would think of if I were to say finally this morning. It's more like uh, as for the rest or in addition to. It's just marking a change in subject. Uh, Paul was talking about Timothy. He was talking about Epaphroditus. And then Paul says, well, let's get back on track here. Let's start a new subject. And that's what's going on in Philippians chapter 3. This is a brand new section, and he says in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. That's a command. Uh, That is, if you've ever studied the book, the overarching theme of the book of Philippians, to rejoice in the Lord. What I love about that is that the foundation of our joy, it's not in ourselves, it's in Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul says, it's a command, rejoice in the Lord. 
The book of Philippians is full of joy. There's 23 uses of the word for joy in the book of Philippians alone. Seven times it's the same word that's found here in chapter 3, verse uh, 1. Paul says to write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous. Why does he say that? Because he's saying again, for like the umpteenth time, rejoice. He says, it's not tedious, it's not grievous for me to repeat myself. He's a teacher. He's a good teacher. He repeats things over and over again. And for him, it's not monotonous, it's not tedious, because it's safety and security for the church. He says, for you, it is safe. It's safe. Turns out that hearing the same bit of truth over and over again stabilizes you on the foundation of the Word of God. Don't ever get tired of hearing the same simple truths of God's precious and profitable book. He says, for you, that's safe, that's secure, to repeat myself. He, in verse 2, warns of false teachers. He says, uh, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. That's a play on the word circumcision. Uh, the word concision means a mutilator. A mutilator it means to mutilate. Paul's warning against the Judaizers. There were those in Paul's day that were adding the law to the gospel. And now we know that faith plus anything equals heresy when it comes to the gospel, right? It's faith in Christ alone. And the Judaizers were preaching faith plus the works of the law, particularly uh, the right of circumcision. And Paul calls them the concision, which literally means the mutilation. They were mutilating the gospel by adding circumcision back onto it. You know, even in our day, there's no shortage of teachers out there that are making the gospel complicated. They're making it complicated. They're mutilating it. They're twisting it. They preach teachings and doctrines that you would never come to on your own by just reading your Bible because somebody had to add it on. And he warns them against that. He identifies, verse 3, what a true believer is. He says, for we are the circumcision, verse 3, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. What is a true believer? Well, we worship God in the Spirit, just as Jesus told the woman at the well that we would. We worship God in Spirit and in truth. Uh, it also says that we rejoice in Christ Jesus, our identity, our outlook. It's not dependent on our circumstances. It's dependent on Christ. It's caught up in Christ. And then we have zero confidence, Paul says, in the flesh. And then in verses 4 through 6, he compares the pursuit of piety to the pursuit of a person. Paul says, if any man might have confidence in the flesh, I more. Paul reached the pinnacle of the pursuit of piety. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means that he was full-on Hebrew. There were those in the book of Acts uh, that had Greek background. They were Jews, but they came from other countries, and, and they weren't considered full Jew. You know, they had some cultural things that were going on. No, Paul was, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I know the tribe I came from. I was uh, raised and taught in Jerusalem. I spent my whole life, he says, pursuing the Jewish religious system which was just really an inflated law of Moses. And he even says that he was successful in every measure of the term. If you understand what the Pharisees were like, he had wealth, uh, he had respect, he had position, he had power. He had attained all that the pursuit of piety could offer to him. 
But Paul tells us here in Philippians 3 that the world's standard of success and righteousness, even if you fully realize and fully attain all of that, it's still considered loss. In verses 7 and 8, he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. When I read that, I realized I have, this happens to me, I don't, you might be smarter than me, but I realized it doesn't say lost. It says loss. I count it as loss. He didn't lose it. He regards it as loss. The word loss, it's used by Paul in Acts 27 when he predicts that the voyage that they were about to embark on would end before they or end in shipwreck before they ever set sail. He said, sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage. That's the same word, loss, not only of the lading, the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. I count it loss. You can find the word again in the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 16, where he says, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Paul says, My former life, as glamorous and as successful as it was, was all loss compared with the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, of knowing Christ. He goes even further in verse 8. He declares that he regards his previous life and accomplishments as excrement, less than worthless. Not just worthless, less than worthless when compared to the prospect of gaining Christ. Paul's new priority wasn't piety any longer. It was that he would be found in Christ. Verse 9, be found in him, not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness which is through faith of Christ. Paul's desire was to abide at Christ. He says, I want to be found in him, that at death or at the rapture, whatever came first, he would be found in Christ. Jesus said, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith in the earth? Paul's desire is that he would be found faithful when he saw Jesus face to face, not trusting himself, not trusting his own efforts, having no confidence, he said in verse 3, in the flesh, but total faith in the Savior. And that leads us to our text, which is verses 10 through 14. So let me read that again. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death, if by any means I might attain under the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I'd already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark of the pri for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The new year is it's already upon us. 2022, believe it or not, is actually here. I kind of feel like somebody owes me a year in there somewhere. But 2022 is actually here. And for all of us, this is a natural time of retrospective reflection. Uh, we're tallying up the last year and all that happened, and we're looking forward to the new year. Um, some people make resolutions. Uh, some people do other sorts of things like that. We set goals of managing our time, goals for managing our health, goals for improving our relationships, goals of embarking on new projects or finally finishing that project. All of these things are good and helpful, and all of those will improve your year, no doubt. But have you spent much time considering what 2022 
will hold for you spiritually. You know what's a good indicator, an accurate indicator of what your spiritual life will look like in 2022? 2021. What has the previous year produced in you spiritually? In what ways have you grown? Are there victories that you can look back on in 2021? Are you content to let 2022 be a repeat performance of 2021 in your walk with Christ? That's a perfect indicator of the path that you're on. Here in Philippians chapter 3, we're confronted with a simple but very profound uh, question. What are you pursuing? The world around us pursues wealth, pursues fame, reputation, advancement, power, prestige. All of that, according to Paul's uh, own testimony, is less than worthless. It's excrement to the one whose goal is Christ. What are you pursuing exactly? What's been your motivation? What's been your driving force in your Christian life up until this point? Because there's only one pursuit that will leave you truly satisfied, and that's the pursuit of a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that might sound simple and obvious, and it certainly should be, but scores of well-meaning Christians are pursuing piety instead of pursuing the person, Jesus Christ. And if you're driven to be in church and involved and in your Bible because of family expectations, you're not pursuing a person. And as soon as that family accountability is gone, you'll fall away. If you're driven to be in church and involved and in your Bible uh, because of a, the pastor or the Sunday school teacher or you're trying to impress an elder, well, you're, you're not really pursuing a person and you open the door wide for unreasonable expectations and resentment which will cripple you spiritually. If you're lockstep in some program or conference or, or plan, you're not pursuing a person. And as soon as the program is finished or there's some sort of scandal in the leadership, all of that so-called progress crumbles with it. It's a house of cards. Understand what I'm saying this morning and what I'm asking and realize with me that all of these things are good. Family is good. Pastors are good. Programs are good. All of those things are good at pointing you to Christ and encourage you in the Lord, but none of those things can be a substitute for the pursuit of the person of Jesus Christ. What are you pursuing exactly? Are you pursuing the person, Jesus Christ? And this morning, we'll take our outline straight from the verses here in verses 10 through 14, and we'll divide verses 10 through 14 into five simple parts, the first of which is the person. The person, in verse 10, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. The knowledge of Christ is superb, Paul says. It's excellent. It's far beyond the prestige and prosperity that the world pursues. Do you know the person, Jesus Christ? Do you know him? Have you been acquainted, become acquainted with the very expression of God's incredible matchless love? in the person of Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.16 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us. God demonstrated his love for you individually when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place. Romans 5.8 says, God commendeth 
his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To understand that and to really grasp the depths of that, you have to understand every single person without exception is born a sinner. There's none righteous, the Bible says. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And according to the Bible, the penalty for that sin is death. And that death includes a real hell for all eternity. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. The problem is, is that sinners can't become righteous on their own. Why? Because everything we do is tainted by sins. All our, our righteousnesses, the Bible says, are as filthy rags. All of us, we are all as an unclean thing. Everything we do, even the plowing of the wicked, the Bible says, is sin. Everything we do is tainted by sin. And so God, knowing our condition, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for you because he loves you. In this was manifested or revealed or shown the love of God toward us in that, or because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Jesus died in your place. He paid your penalty. The Bible doesn't say the wages of sin is baptism or church membership or giving or a family. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ died your death, paid your penalty, took your place. He was buried, and three days later, he rose from the grave and ascended to sit on the right hand of his heavenly Father and offers you the free gift of eternal life. He paid your penalty. And if you'll accept his payment, God will give you the free gift of eternal life. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, and you can receive that gift yourself, for yourself, by calling out to Christ in faith. For whosoever, it says, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You have to trust Jesus alone to save you. You can't add him in to all the other things that you're trying to get you to heaven. You have to trust in him alone to save you, and he will save you from sin and the penalty of death and hell. I love the promise that he made. In John 6, 37, he says, He that cometh unto me, I in no wise will cast out. No exceptions, he's never turned anyone away. Never. And once you place your confidence in the person, Jesus Christ, for salvation, everything changes from there. All becomes new. Do you know the person, Jesus Christ? Paul certainly did. He called him Lord. But Paul desired to know him more. To know him more. Do you notice what Paul did not say in verse 10? Paul does not say that I might know about him. You don't have to be a scholar. Paul doesn't say that I might know of him. You don't have to be a historian. Paul doesn't say that I might know his precepts. You don't have to be a, theolo a theologian. His desire was to know him. You just have to be a Christian, and you can know Jesus Christ personally. The word know there is the Greek word gnosko. It means a close acquaintance with something. It means to know by experience, to have a personal acquaintance or experience with uh, one one man said, this is Paul's major passion to get more knowledge of Christ by experience. And this knowledge, according to the definition and the connotation of the word in Paul's day, doesn't inject one's own opinion. It doesn't form one's own opinion. Rather, it embraces Christ as he really is. 
and accepts him the way he really is? Do you know the person, Jesus Christ? Is he your close acquaintance? Do you embrace him as he is? Do you know him by experience? Because he's a person. He's a real, actual person, and you should know him. He has expectations. Do you know what they are? He has character traits and attributes. Do you know what Jesus is like? He can be pleased and displeased. Do you know what pleases him? Do you know what grieves him? How do you know him? By spending time in his autobiography, the Bible. Jesus told the religious leaders, he said, search the scriptures, they testify of me. There's no mystical endeavor to knowing Christ. You don't have to meditate on top of a mountain somewhere. Just read his word. It's a biblical endeavor. Embrace him as he is. Learn of him. Know him better. It's not something you can do in a day. You can't go take a block course, a four-hour course on knowing Christ and come away all set. It's a lifelong endeavor. To know Christ, to know the person of Christ, is a lifelong endeavor. One man said this, to know someone requires genuine interest. Getting to know a person well involves spending quality time with him. In a meaningful and progressive relationship, each person reveals himself, his likes, his dislikes, his hopes, his fears, his ambitions, his history, his thoughts, and his feelings. Building an intimate relationship is not the work of a day or two. It's a lifetime of association. The knowledge of Christ, according to Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, far exceeds all that the world could possibly offer you. And there's no greater purpose in your life than knowing the person, Jesus Christ. John Phillips said, No one can live a holy life without utter dedication to the life purpose of knowing Christ. The life of a Christian is the pursuit of a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And not only did Paul desire to know the person of Christ, he sought to know by experience the power of Christ. Look at verse 10 again. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. I don't know if this has occurred to you or not yet, but it occurred to me while studying this passage. You can't know the, power, the person of Christ without the power of the resurrection. You can't know someone personally if they're dead. You can read about them, uh, but you can never really know them. You can know the person of Jesus Christ because he's alive and well and seated at the right hand of his heavenly Father in heaven. Only through the power of the resurrection can you know the Savior. He is risen, and you can know him personally yourself today. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. The fact that Jesus is actually alive makes all of his promises more potent and more powerful. He didn't set you on the path to walk it by yourself. 
uh, to go it on your own or in your own strength or in your own willpower. Jesus never intended for you to do Christianity and give it your best shot or to pull up your own bootstraps or to clench your teeth and just push ahead alone. His parting command and his great commission was made on the premise of his ever-present power. Matthew 28, we know these verses. Jesus says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Jesus declared, he's been given all the power and therefore we can go out and reach the world for him, not without him, but by him and through him. He calls you to yoke up with him. He says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. If you know anything about cattle, if you know anything about a yoke of oxen, it's two animals yoked together. His yoke is easy. His burden is light because Christian, you're yoked up with the almighty infinite creator of all the universe. He's the one bearing the burden. He's the one doing the work. He's the one carrying the load. And you and I have the joy and the privilege and the honor of walking alongside of him. Not by might, God says, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. His strength is made perfect in weakness. His grace is always sufficient. And we are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Are you well acquainted with that power? Have you experienced the power of Christ for yourself? The power that gives victory over sin and the world. The power that brings peace and joy and hope and grace in any circumstance. The power that brings... The, the power of Christ, the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ, it's often misunderstood. And what I mean by that is that living by the power of Christ is not the life of the apostle, the prophet, going from one miracle to the next. It's not. It is the life of pursuing his person moment by moment so that your day-to-day -day becomes the miracle. A life tied up and lived by the power and the spirit of the resurrected person of Jesus Christ. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 1, verse 3. It says, According as his divine power hath given, us unto, uh, given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And knowing the person... You experience his power, but don't miss this truth. And that's of the participation in verse 10. Paul says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. There's an aspect of pursuing the person of Christ that's not popular preaching. It's a topic that's often ignored or overlooked altogether, but it's literally a verse in the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.12, all that will live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. Make no mistake, those that preach prosperity and peace are preaching a false gospel because to know the person of Christ is to participate in his suffering. Trouble is a part of life whether you're a Christian or not. 
For the Christian, however, we participate in the suffering of Christ, rejoicing in that we're counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. 1 Peter 4 says in verse 13, But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Don't be surprised by the trials and troubles of this life. Don't be surprised if there's pain and suffering. Your Savior was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Should the servants be greater than their Lord? God spared not his own son, the Bible says, but gave him up for us all. Should we think it unjust that we should have to know suffering and experience pain? Our troubles are not wasted the Bible promises. Our trials are never without a purpose. Every situation, every circumstance, God carefully and competently crafts for our good and our growth and conforms us to the image of Christ by allowing us to participate in his sufferings. Trouble should drive you deeper in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Difficulties and hardships and pain and persecution and opposition cannot separate you from Christ. Rather, they should drive you to him. Your identity is not wrapped up in your pain or in your past. Your identity is to be wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ and only a child of God relying on the power of God can know the participation of his sufferings and grow closer to God. 1 Corinthians 4 says, or 2 Corinthians 4 rather says this, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered up unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh." There was a missionary by the name of David Livingston. You probably have heard of him or at least heard Dr. Livingston, I presume. Uh, that's the same Livingston. He was a Scottish missionary uh, who was an explorer throughout Africa. He spent 33 years in the heart of Africa. There were no roads. There was none of that. He was, his goal was to make Africa accessible to missions and the gospel. He spread the gospel. He opened the continent to new missionaries. And this godly missionary once remarked, who had suffered terribly and lost just about everything in this pursuit, he said, people talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? It is emphatically no sacrifice. Rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and may cause our spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let that only be for a moment. All of these are nothing compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice, Livingston said. Of this we ought not to talk. When we remember the great sacrifice which he made, who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. Paul said, we can't pursue the person unless we're willing, as Jesus said, to take up our cross and die daily to ourselves, to sin, to pride, to expectations, to comfort, to convenience, and count it all joy to participate in his sufferings, considering 
by the way, this is extra credit. Paul was writing this from prison. Considering the prize. Philippians 3.10 says this about the prize. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, Either we're already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Verse 11 is a bit peculiar. It's kind of strange. If you didn't know the rest of the Bible or the rest of Scripture, you might get the impression that Paul was striving to make his resurrection sure. But even if you read Ephesians one time, you would realize that's, that can't be it at all. Uh, Paul had zero doubts that his spot in heaven was secure. He said, we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus in the book of Ephesians. Paul had no doubts of his resurrection. Eternal life in God's presence is a gift. It's never earned. It's not of works. We know and believe that. We understand that. If you dig a little bit deeper into the word that Paul uses for resurrection in verse 11, you would uh, discover that of all the letters Paul wrote, he only uses this word one time, and it's here. As a matter of fact, it occurs nowhere else in Scripture. It's a compound word. There's a preposition attached to the front of it, which makes the literal meaning something like the resurrection out of the dead. I wonder if Paul used that special word because he had more than heaven in mind. Perhaps he had in mind a prize above and beyond eternal life those rewards given to those faithful followers who the Savior deems worthy of special recognition. And that makes a bit more sense, and it does agree with Scripture. There will be rewards. There will be crowns. There will be positions of recognition and authority in Christ's kingdom. And Paul's desire was to apprehend, to obtain, to lay hold on the riches of eternal life. He admonished the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. He encouraged Timothy, that young preacher in 1 Timothy 6, 12, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Same word as apprehend. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. And though here in Philippians 3, it doesn't seem like Paul was 100% confident that he attained that prize, he spoke a little differently when he was about to be martyred for the gospel of Christ. And late in his life, right before he died, he wrote Timothy again in 2 Timothy 4 and said, I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Heaven is a gift, but prizes are earned. Those that pursue the person of Christ and the power of Christ, participating in the suffering and sacrifice of Christ, are given the hope of the prize in Christ. And this brings us to the pursuit in verses 12 through 14. It says, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press 
toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. This path that we're on, it's not a leisurely stroll. It's a race. It's a pursuit. And the goal is Christ. Follow after there in verse 12 and press forward in verse 14 are translated from the same underlying word, to pursue. That word is so forceful in its imagery that elsewhere in your Bible, it's translated persecute. To pursue Christ. The phrase, press toward the mark, is a sports illustration. Paul loved sports illustration, and it, and it conjures up the image of a runner leaning towards the goal in the heat of the race. Do you pursue Christ with such a passion as that? There's several exhortations in Scripture to pursue. We're to pursue righteousness, according to 1 Timothy 6.11. We're to pursue peace with all men, Hebrews 12 and Romans 14. We're to pursue that which is good in 1 Thessalonians 5. 15. We're to pursue charity in 1 Corinthians 14. We're to pursue hospitality in Romans chapter 12. But Paul's pursuit, notice the description of it. First of all, there's a mark, also known as the goal. He's got in mind a race, a sprint, and the runner would set his eyes on the finish line, and in that day would be a pole or a post with a mark on it. He'd set his eyes and run full tilt towards that mark, that goal for us, the goal is Jesus. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The mark is Jesus. There's also a prize, which we spent some time on, so we won't uh, hash over that again. See your notes for that. And then there's a calling. He says, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It's literally an upward calling. It's a calling, Paul says, that causes you to never look back, forgetting those things which are behind. We could spend a conference on that concept alone, forgetting those things which are behind. Don't dwell on the past. Don't be one of those Christians where your whole identity is wrapped up in that one terrible thing that happened to you. Don't dwell on the past, forgetting those things which are behind. Don't dwell on past pain. Don't dwell on past progress. Both of those are a trap that the devil wants you to fall in. Christ says, live in the present. Press toward the mark. It's an upward calling. It's a calling that keeps your attention on things above. And Paul uses that same word to challenge the church in Colossae when he says in Colossians 3, if you be then risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. What are you pursuing exactly? Because true biblical Christianity is not the pursuit of piety. It's the pursuit of a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Do you know him by experience? Are you acquainted with him? Is he your personal Lord and Savior? We throw that around. But really, is he personal to you? Are you familiar with his power? The power that flows through every moment, every circumstance of life that affects every aspect of your life. Don't let difficulties rattle you or shake your faith. 
Participation in his sufferings is a normal and expected part of the Christian life. Don't be bitter. Don't resent the hard times. Remember how willing our Savior was to suffer for our sake. Do you realize there's prizes in store for those that pursue Christ? The participation trophy is heaven. Okay? The prize, the prize awaits those that strive for the faith and lay hold on eternal life, as Paul says. Pursue him. That's a resolution worth making in 2022. The year that you pursue above all other pursuits, it's good to have goals. It's good to want to do better at your job. It's good to want to spend more time with family. All those things are good. But above all else, pursue Christ, the person, Jesus Christ. Because Pastor and Joe aren't here, Brother Schlichter told me to just keep going. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes before we get into our invitation. And just hear me this morning. Don't pack up. You'll have time to do that later. To pursue him, you have to know him. And if you're here this morning, and you know for sure, 100%, there's not a doubt in your mind that you're saved, that you're on the way to heaven, would you just slip up your hand, Pastor? I know for sure. Not a doubt in my mind. I'm saved. I know it. All right, you can put your hands down. Nobody's looking around. Maybe you weren't able to raise your hand. You're not 100% sure. You know that that's not uncommon. It's not wrong to have questions. It's not wrong to have doubts. But if you're not 100% sure that you really know Jesus, I'd like the opportunity to pray for you. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I'd just like to pray for you. So if you couldn't raise your hand, if you're not 100% sure that you're saved, that you know Christ, would you just slip up your hand and say, Pastor Will, would you pray for me? I, I'm not 100% sure that I know Jesus is my Savior. I, I'm not 100% sure that I'm on my way to heaven. Is there anyone here like that? I'd like to pray for you. No one's looking around. Those of us that do know Christ, have you been pursuing Christ? Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you know God is speaking to your heart about your own spiritual life. It's amazing. A pastor can preach a message and everyone comes away with their own unique lesson from the Lord. Maybe you're here today and God's speaking to your heart about something. I'd appreciate the opportunity to pray for you as well. If you're saved this morning, you say, Pastor, I know I'm saved, but God is working on my heart about this matter. Would you just raise your hand? Pastor, pray for me. God's worked in my heart this morning. There's some things I need to work on. I see those hands. Anyone else? Father, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the work that he's doing and has done here in this place this morning. Help those that have raised their hands. Reveal yourself to those that have questions that are not sure of their salvation. Draw them to yourself, Lord, and make the simple truth of the gospel clear that they might receive it for themselves. Put a passion in the hearts of your people here this morning to draw closer to you, to passionately pursue your Son, Jesus Christ. May it be our focus all this year. Be with this invitation now and work through it. Amen.